Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Sanjaya Prawiro. And um, just a quick survey. How many of you received the church bulletin by email or by WhatsApp this week? Raise your hands. And did you read it? You read it? I'm not John Zhang. John is sick today, uh, so he's not feeling well. So I am uh, swapping place to uh, preach this morning. Uh, and actually, I'm very honored um, this morning because I am going to start off uh, the seven-week series that we will be um, sharing with you guys for the next seven weeks. Uh, it's called Virtues and Vices. Now, uh, I'm not sure if you can see it from the back. Um, there is, I'm going to start off with contentment versus discontentment. And then next week, um, John is going to do encouragement versus criticism. And then we go to humility versus pride, trust and anxiety, forgiveness and bitterness, courage versus fear. And we'll end with generosity versus indulgence. Now, this list over here um, is not in any order of, you know, good, better, best, or bad, worse, and worse. It's just worked out this way because of the, um, the schedule of the um, preaching team. Okay? Um, so, today, uh, we'll be talking about contentment versus discontentment. So after the service this morning, somebody came up to me and said, there's a Christian comedian who asked this question, which I think it's uh, make a lot of sense. Which tent are you in? Are you in the contentment tent or the discontentment tent? Right? Because being content is perhaps the most elusive of all of the Christian virtues, maybe except humility. We are not naturally content. In our fallen nature, we are naturally very discontented individual. We're not content because in our minds, we're always playing the if-only scenarios. If circumstances change, Maybe I can be more joyful. If circumstances change, maybe I'm happier or I, I can be more content. But in our self-idolatry, it's not going to happen. Now, the Apostle Paul waged the same frustrating internal war with himself. Nevertheless, he was able to write and told the church in Philippi that he has learned to be content in every and any circumstances. So he has achieved the art of contentment. And in the next verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, this is what Apostle Paul wrote. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So essentially what he is saying is that he did not know how to be content at first, 
but by the grace of God, he has mastered it. Being content is not only a duty of every Christian, but also a mark of excellence in Christian living. So Paul has learned the secret of being content. And my goal today is to share some insights on what to work on in our lives on how to be content. If you have kids, um, most likely you have watched the movie Kung Fu Panda. In the noodles, there is a secret sauce, right? And so Paul has learned this secret sauce, and hopefully, as we go through today, um, we'll share some of those ingredients with you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this morning, for everyone to be here, um, to be joyful and to be in your presence. We continue to pray for John as he um, recovers from his um, being uh, unwell. Father, we pray for humility and humble spirit as we listen to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the word content in the original Greek language, it's actually not apparent in the translation. In the strict sense, the meaning can only be attributed to God who calls himself El Shaddai, the God all-sufficient. See, God finds God rests fully satisfied in Him alone. So to understand why contentment is important and why it is so elusive, we must first understand how deeply sinful our discontentment is. So I've laid out the talk this morning, um, and they are in different colors. This picture is going to be really tiny, and it's going to be on the bottom right of the screen. So if you doze off, and then you wake up in the middle, and just look at the color, and that's where we are in, in today's sermon. So from the Webster, uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the definition of discontentment is lack of satisfaction with one's possession, status, or situation. Um, it's quite vague. Um, it's clear in itself, but to me, it doesn't really um, describe the word itself. But the second definition that is in the dictionary, I like it better. It's restless aspirations for improvement. So restless means it's an internal, because discontentment can only come from the inside. It is rooted deep within a person. Okay? It is a very effective catalyst. It is dormant, but once it senses just a tiny bit of desires in our life, it morphs itself into something bigger and more dangerous. For example, maybe as you were driving to church today, uh, somebody cuts you off and you become unhappy. And because you are not happy, the next thing you know, you are unhappy with everybody else. Or you are worried about your kids going to college, and the next thing you know, anxiety, anxiety attack 
is right there in front of you. Or you wanted something that your neighbor has, and then it becomes you covet for that thing. So the Bible is not lacking stories of discontentment. The stories of the Israelites on their wandering journey um, to the promised land. In fact, God punished them for 40 years just wandering around the desert. What about the story of uh, King Saul? Um, the prophet Samuel had told him that he would no longer be king. God has chosen somebody else. But he tried to maintain power. What about King David with Bathsheba? These are all good stories, but I chose the following two stories from the Bible because I think it clearly showed the point of what discontentment is. So for the first illustration, I want us to go back all the way to the beginning of time, where it all started. God created everything, all His creation, and He called them good. Adam and Eve had perfect health, perfect living environment, and they had a direct personal relationship with God. They had everything they needed. Now picture this for Adam, right? There was no other women around. Eve was it. So there, Adam, for Adam, there should not be any temptation of infidelity. There was only Eve. Now at that time, work was not cursed. So, there was no need for Adam to slave himself to or for work. He also didn't have to compare himself to anyone about his job or his positions at work. Why? There was no one else. And since there was no one else, there was no need for Adam to boast about his possessions. And yet, he sinned. So what caused Adam and Eve to eat the fruit and sin? Many conclude that you can give many reasons as to why they ate the fruit from the tree of good and evil. But for the purpose of today's discussion, I would like to suggest that one of the reasons of them eating the fruit is because they were restless. They were discontent with what they have. They wanted one thing. Once they knew what it was, they wanted that. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God had warned Adam, of every tree you may eat, except the tree from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So at this point, Eve was not created. So God spoke directly to Adam. Now, when Eve know that she should not eat from the tree. She didn't hear it directly from God. Now, God created us in His image, and what else did He tell Adam? He told Adam to have dominion over the earth and dominion over every living creature on earth. And Satan, in his fallen nature, he cannot have this dominion because God gives this dominion to Adam. So in order for a transfer of dominionship, if you will, Satan has to make Adam and Eve sin. So that is a transfer of dominion. 
So Satan's goal is to destroy humankind, to destroy God's creation. So from the very beginning, Eve was the softer target, the easier prey, if you will. This is what God said to Adam. And so how was Eve deceived? The first thing that Satan did was to isolate Eve. Now, there are many discussions among biblical scholars whether Adam was standing next to Eve when the conversation between the serpent and Eve took place. They were proponent on both sides. But I am on the side where Adam was with Eve, but he was not next to Eve. He was in the vicinity. So, for example, I'm with you guys in this room, but you are not standing next to me up front. You are over there. So I'm of that proponent. Now, if that is the case, then the strategy of isolating Eve from Adam, who heard directly from God, makes a lot of sense. We tend to fall and think about a lot of stuff when we were alone. We are more easily tempted when we're alone. So Satan used that opportunity to isolate Eve. The second thing that Satan did was to make Eve doubt about God, doubt about his words. Did God really say this? Because Eve didn't hear it directly. Maybe it was Adam who told you not to eat because he wanted the fruit all by himself. What about Satan makes Eve doubt about God's goodness? God didn't want you to eat because then you would be like him. You would be able to know what is good and what is evil. So he is not really a good God. He is not blessing you. And finally, Satan make Eve doubt about God's judgment. Death, nobody died yet. So the idea of dying, of death, is probably uh, a nebulous idea to Eve. right? So she, she didn't know what, what it meant. The straw that finally breaks the, break the camel's back is that, that restless aspirations. Why can't I have this? Why can't I have that? And finally, if you continue reading chapter 3, verse 2, verse 3, it says that Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that this contentment in her life becomes feeding to her flesh. It is good for my flesh. It's good for food. And it also morphed itself into the lust of the eyes. The tree was pleasant to the eyes. And finally, this discontentment rise up to her pride of life. I want this because I want to be wise. Discontentment is a sin. Now, unlike many other sins, discontentment comes in progressive steps. You just don't become discontent because, you know, the next minute. You are discontent because of things that are happening in your life, things that you are thinking. Now, what about Adam? How did he sin? Adam was not deceived. He knew what he was doing. Adam chose to sin. Because God talked to him 
and warned him personally, Adam chose to sin. He didn't, the, the serpent didn't talk to Adam. Eve gave the fruit to Adam. Adam took it. Adam loved the creation, which is the fruit, or Eve in this case, more than he loved the Creator. This contentment is a sin because it is a rebellion against God. Now, for the second illustration, I am going to take an example from the person who had literally everything, and that is King Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, this is what King Solomon wrote. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. I crossed that because King Solomon wrote this after the fact. So to paraphrase what he wrote is this. I mean, it's really funny if you think about it. I'm not happy with uh, the things that are going on in my life. I'm going to test myself. I'm going to do an experiment on myself. Okay? And what kind of experiment he's, he's doing? Well, first, he wants to search his heart to gratify his flesh with wine. And we can extrapolate this into substance abuse. And many of us sometimes choose that avenue. Wine, uh, substance, drugs, sexual pleasure. But King Solomon told us it is not there. In verses 4 to 6, where else did King Solomon search and did his experiment? By burying himself in making projects. He built houses, planted himself vineyards, made gardens, Orchards planted fruits of trees of fruits of many kinds, and yet contentment is not found there. Not burying yourself in work, and some of us do today. In verses 7 and 8, King Solomon searched for contentment in his possessions. He acquired male and female servants, herds and flocks, silver and gold, you know, the, the, the herd and flocks thing probably don't make sense to us. But what about a bigger house, a fancier car, uh, a bigger bank account, right? and possessions? King Solomon told us it is not there. You can't find contentment there. In verse 9, he accumulated power. He was more powerful than anyone before him. Many of us try to do that today with power. Some people go into politics. Uh, some people climb the corporate ladders, regardless of whatever they want to do. Just, I just need to be there. Okay. And finally, in verse 10 and 11, King Solomon tried to find contentment in his work. Now, some of us hope that by working and working and working, it would fulfill something that is rooted deep in our hearts, but it's not there. And King Solomon wrote, apart from God, which he used the word under the sun, which is apart from God, so in this earth, 
apart from God, you cannot find contentment here. So, this contentment is a sin of covetousness. It is the root in which pride, idolatry, and anger grows. This contentment is just the main ingredient. And it twists many of our sins and morphs into different things. It comes out different things. So it is a sin. While this contentment is a sin, contentment, on the other hand, is a mark of excellence in a Christian living. It is the goal of every Christian to be content. And this is universal. What do I mean by that? It concerns everyone, regardless of the social status, regardless of your possession, regardless of your profession. Contentment is universal to every Christian. And why is it that as a Christian, being content is important? In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. So the God who told us to believe in Him also told us to be content. His word is His will. What about the second verse? The second verse of this verse, For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the second part of this verse says, If you believe me, then you should believe my promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And God sees in His infinite wisdom that the same condition that, is, that work for somebody else may be the bad one for another person. So we can't compare our condition to one another. So what then is the definition of Christian contentment? The author, Rob Summers, from his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, say it like this. A Christian contentment is a sweet, inward, quiet, grace-filled condition of the Spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly management in every condition. So in other words, in simple term, contentment is satisfaction in God's will. So let's go back to this verse. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. So contentment, you cannot acquire this. It has to come from within. It's infused. You cannot acquire contentment, regardless of how much money you have. You cannot buy this. It is infused. You have to learn it. And for me, the difficult part about this message, uh, giving this message, is, is to explain or to provide the how-to as part of the materials so that you and I can take practical steps to supplement other ingredients, if you will, in our walk 
to become more Christ-like. It is difficult because this is a learning process. Every person learns a different way. Learning is a personal thing. How did Paul learn it? Well, he was beaten. He was stranded. He was hungry. He was ill, almost dying. He was in prison. That's his path of learning. That's his journey. For us, it may be different. Learning is, is individual, and it's long. It takes a long process. It's continuous. You never stop learning. And learning is difficult. I am 50, over 50. Um, and for me, it is humbling. Right? We think that the older we get, the wiser we become, but it is not true. Right? Learning is humbling. Imagine Paul, a rising star in the Pharisees. But what he learned, what he believed, was completely wrong. God had to intervene and change his life. Right? Imagine that experience, right? It's extremely humbling. Now, to learn means you have to become a student or you have to become a disciple. Now, we are a disciple of Christ. There are certain characters that we must possess in order that we become a good student. So some of the characters of a good student is you are a good follower and listener. You are goal-driven. Our goal is to be Christ-like. It's goal-driven. And we have to have a teachable heart. Again, as we get older, it is more difficult for us to be teachable. It is not easy because you think that the older we get, we, we know it all. To be a good student, to be a good disciple, we must be inspired. We must be diligent. We must be disciplined. We must persevere because learning is difficult. We must be motivated. And we must be a practitioner, not just reader, not just hearer but we must practice what we hear and what we read. And I think the final point about being a good student or being a good uh, character of a student is that this student has an extensive and a supporting community around him or her. Because without a community, a student will fail. Usually you have a community of, of families or relatives or tutors or friends or professors that guide and, you know, nurture this individual. And so, the practical steps that I'm going to share with you uh, will hopefully, you write some of them down, and that you will use it to begin your journey into victorious living. Now, some of this you may find, well, it doesn't work for me. And that's okay. Right? Uh, because we all, again, learning is personal and it's different for everyone. And some of you may actually have a different uh, tips, a different way, a different ingredients to how to make this work. By all means, maybe we can have a discussion after today, after the sermon. Right? 
But most of the things that we'll be learning is not externally, but it's more of your spirit inside of you, your soul, your, the way you think, the way you make decisions. So, as Kung Fu Panda said, the secret ingredients are it's blank. <laughs> so, the first one, if you have never thought that this contentment is a sin, you need to repent. We need to come to God and say, God, uh, this is something that I've never thought about, and I need to repent from this sin. And the second is work on your faith. Now, somebody came to me earlier after the service, and he said, how do you work on a faith? It's a nebulous concept, right? So let me try to break this down. Work on your faith. Another quick survey. How many of you believe in God? Raise your hands. Well, maybe 20%. We need to do a better job as a church to uh, um, make more believers out of you guys. So if you believe in God, believe is the key word. Believe in God. If you believe in God, you cannot just believe in God. You have to believe His entire nature. You have to believe that He is sovereign. You have to believe of His promises. But what do we do? As a fallen, sinful person, yes, God, I believe in you, but I don't trust your plan. This part of your plan, I'm okay, but this part of your plan, uh, I'm not so sure. Right? So, believe in God is one thing, but do you truly trust Him with His plan? Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says, God says, for I know the plans I have for you. Right? So believe in God is one thing, but trusting in His plan is one thing. Now suppose you believe in Him 100%, you trust in His plan 100%, but are you okay with the outcome of His plan? I didn't get that project. Uh, that boyfriend cheated on me, ran away with somebody else. I was supposed to marry him, right? So believe in him, trusting him, but do you, are you okay with the outcome of his plan? Because this is his character. He's sovereign. Right? He has his plan for you, but, and he knows best in his infinite wisdom. So the outcome of the plan is also part of his plan in your life. And Romans 8.28 says, everything works for the good of those who believe in Him. Next is be confident in God's assurances. So if God says He is in your corner, if He is with you, who can be against you, then do you believe that fully? The secret ingredient, or number four, is cloak ourselves with humility and a teachable heart. It is difficult. It is a mindset. It is the mind of your soul and your spirit, how to be humble. Keep your conscience clear. What I mean by that is, if you take a look at Paul, he accepted 
and he was content. So let's take an example when he was in prison. If he preoccupies his mind other than God's work, we would probably never have this book. He would be grumbling, he would be angry, right? But instead, his conscience was clear. And what did he do? He praised, he sang while he was in prison. He ministered and shared the gospel to the prison guards and the inmates. And he wrote. Many of the books were written by Paul when he was in prison. So he kept his conscience clear. So my suggestion to you is, you know what's facing you on a daily basis, what struggles you have, what discontentment you are facing. What if you make something that you preoccupy your mind, your conscience with something else that is honoring to God rather than dwelling in, in the problem? The next one is learn to deny yourself. Now, this one, um, especially difficult for me. So when I shared to my wife that I'm going to be preaching uh, contentment versus discontentment topic, she said, yep, that's you. That's you. Because it is extremely difficult for us to deny ourselves. Now, what does it mean? It is not, of course, in the Christian way, denying yourself means you have to take up your cross daily and, and, and follow His Word. But what I meant here to deny yourself is to basically kill my desire, to basically kill our desire. So, some people, the lines between need and desires are blurred. Right? So, how do we deny ourselves, our desire? The next one is get as much heaven in our hearts. The more you preoccupy your hearts with for whose glory it is. Is it for your glory or it is for His glory? That will help quiet down the spirit of your discontentment. So if you're feeling restless, if you're feeling this quiet spirit in your heart, Ask yourself, is it for His glory or is it for your glory? By the way, there are 17 points. Uh, actually, there are more, but for some reason I chose 17 points. Um, dwell on our light condition. Light and dark is the same two sides of a coin. So, for example, someone is sick, rather than dwelling on the dark side of the condition, which is the sickness, can we suggest that look at the blessings and the grace that God has given in your life, the support, the friends that you have, rather than looking at your condition. Remember who we are in this world. So if I introduce myself, you know, you just probably know my name, but I think we're more than that. If you watched the coronation of King Charles III yesterday, well, we are heir to God's throne, and you are heiress to God's throne, and we are God's children. So 
we should be living in this world representing Him rather than you have no idea who you are. You are God's child. <clears throat> and the other thing about who we are in this world is that we are soldiers of Christ. And soldiers accept every condition that was given to them. So a commanding officer command his corporal to say, tonight you'll be staying in the tent. He can't say to the commander and said, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm not staying in the tent. I'm going to the five-star hotel. No, he cannot do that. So we are soldiers of Christ. Our conditions, whatever that is, God has that will for you. Remember who we are. Our hope is not dependent on or off the environment we live in. Regardless of what is happening around us, whether you are a Christian somewhere in the jungle of Papua or in the desert of Afghanistan, our hope is independent of what's going on around us. Finding an accountability partner. Now, I challenge you that you find someone who is maybe struggling the same, find a mentor, or maybe in your community group, share your issue, what discontentment you have, and have an accountability partner. Bring our minds to our conditions. Now, if you bring your conditions to your mind, then your mind is full. That's it. No more capacity to think other things except that condition. But instead, what if you take a piece of your mind into the condition? So then your mind can be used for something else, can be preoccupied with something else. This one everybody liked on the first service. Get fancy regulated. So, if I need to go to point A to point B, do I need uh, something that is uh, 20 seconds or 2 seconds? Uh, I need to buy a shoe. Do I need a red sole shoe or just a regular shoe will do? Get fancy regulated in your life. Nobody laughing. I thought it was pretty funny. Consider how little nature need. Jesus said that now if you look at the birds and the sky, right, they don't worry about what they eat. Right? Actually, what we need in our lives are really simple, basic stuff. If you can regulate that fancy, you will realize that what we need in our lives are actually pretty simple. Believe that the present condition is best for us. Again, this comes from working on your faith. Right? If you believe God and you trust on His plan, then the conditions that we have, we have to trust Him. And that is the best for each and every one of you. Don't look at your neighbor. Do not indulge in the flesh. I think this one is uh, pretty clear. 
So if, you were, if I were to go and, and maybe visit your house and see what kind of books you're reading, uh, what kind of YouTube channels you're watching, or who you follow on your Instagram, right? Are you indulging yourself in the flesh? Because indulging your flesh, right, it starts from you're preoccupying your internal spirit with the external materials, rather than the opposite, where you influence your internal stuff to what you do, but you're doing the opposite. And finally, meditate on the glory which is to be revealed. Some of you are great managers, great business owners. You know how to plan five years, ten years down the road. Right? Some of us even plan for our kids. You know, okay, you'll be going to school here, you'll graduate from here, you will be this, right? But those are just a short moment in, uh, in our time on earth. We need to be focusing rather than what now and five years, 10 years, 20 years, however long we have on this earth, we need to be focusing on what is the glory that is to be revealed to us. That should excite you as a person. Now, in conclusion, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 says that Paul has learned to be content in every situation. And in verse 13, this is what he says. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. So the learning process is personal, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's humbling. But as a disciple of Christ who is working towards to be Christ-like, we are called to be content. Because not only being content, worthy of a Christian living, it is a mark of excellence, but it is God's command to each and every one of us that we should be content. And it is His promise that He is there for you, and He will never forsake you. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for... Um, your love for us, that you never leave us nor forsake us. I know some of these are challenging um, for, for me and for some of um, people that are here today. Give us the spirit of humility and teachable heart as we repent uh, from our sin of discontentment. I pray, Lord, that as we are dismissed and return to our own homes, that your, words, that your words will continue to draw us to you, that we work on to be more content, to just have, being having you is just enough. And it is for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.